this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by Prescore. What on earth is a Prescore? Pre stands for Personal Readiness to Exit Your Company, and here we're looking to evaluate how personally ready you are to leave your company. You know, when you go to sell a business to have a successful exit and look back on it without regret, you need two things. Number one, a company that is attractive to an acquirer, to a company that's built to sell. And number two, you personally need to be ready to exit that business. We found that there are four drivers of a happy and lucrative exit, four ways you can personally ready yourself to exit your business. And by completing your pre-score, you are going to see how you're performing against those four major drivers of a happy and lucrative exit. Just go to prescore.com. Next up is Sonny Venderbeck, who started a company called Data Return. He ended up selling it twice. The first time was a disaster. And the second time around, he more than doubled his money. The com- contrast between the two exits provides a tremendous set of lessons for you as a listener. Listen out for his definition of reverse due diligence and why that is so important to do on a potential acquirer. He talks about three ways that you can avoid some of the psychological pain associated with selling your company. He'll also talk about when to listen to your professional advisors, and if you can believe it or not, when to actually trust your gut instead. He'll define something called fundamental reps and why they're probably not that big a deal, as well as founder speak, which is a big deal. He'll also talk about something called hero mode, which can really detract from the value of your company. Here to tell you the entire story is Sonny Venderbeck. Sonny Vanderbeck. Welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, no. So I was reading so a little bit about you before the interview, and it turns out you've sold the same company twice. <laughs> Let me get my head around that for, for a second. Once you sell a company, isn't it kind of gone forever? You got you to kind of give me the backstory here. So you started a company and then literally sold it twice. Take me through that. Yeah, so here's here's the story. So I started a company um, in 1996, took it public in 1999. Um, that's a whole story in and of itself. And um, it turned out we needed to sell the business, and so we sold it the first time in 2002. Uh, the sale to that acquirer didn't go very well, um, and that acquirer actually didn't make it. So a year later, they were out of business, and we had the opportunity to buy it back. So we bought it back. Um, ran it for another four years as a private company. I had a lot more fun as a private company CEO than a public company CEO, um, and then sold it in early 2007. Maybe sold it the right way the second time. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, so we're going to get into both stories. Let's start with the one that maybe there was some a mulligan you'd like to have or a do-over uh, <laughs> that you'd like to have. So, so you start this company. Let's go back to 1996. What were you guys offering? What, what kind of company was it? Yeah, so um, the other two co-founders and I were at Microsoft, and and we had this crazy idea that people were going to use the internet to buy stuff. 
And at the this time, right, you rewind back to those days, it was a little crazy. I and mean, we were young, you know, early 20s. And, um, and so that was the idea. And, and the opportunity that we saw was that when it actually worked, when you had a complex system selling things on the Internet, uh, these systems were kind of sketchy. They didn't work all the time. They were down a lot. And the customers were going to need help with that. So that was the basic premise of the business that, that ultimately grew into uh, we were responsible for the performance and availability of some of the world's largest websites. Can you list, give us some names that we might know? Uh, sure. Um, so H&R Block, online tax filing, um, which as you can imagine for H&R Block, everything that matters happens in two one-day periods through the year. So those two one-day periods, game on. Can't fix it tomorrow. It has to work today. Um, another example would be Match.com. Um, so we were with Match from probably 20 servers um, in barely a basement to hundreds and hundreds of servers as they became a very large business. Uh, insurance processing for John Hancock, surgical scheduling. Um, so are you are you so, offering? So so they're buying the server space. Was this like the early days of companies like Rackspace, where you're like kind of buying a little apartment on the on the internet, like a little uh, you know. A, part of or an entire server? Were they actually purchasing the server from you or access to it? Yeah, I would say two things. One, um, our customers tended to count in the tens or hundreds of servers. Um, and it was less like an apartment and more like a hotel. So Got the it. distinction was, instead of here's some space, I hope it works out for you. It was, this is my critical business application. Help me figure out how to scale it when 100,000 people connect to it at the same time, and I have to do transactions. And by the way, if it goes down, it's your fault, not mine. Um, so, so that it was look, we signed up for a lot. Um, I slept with my cell phone for at least a decade. Um, I still have the habit, unfortunately, but it was, it was pretty intense. And so you, you're growing. Um, kind of give, give us a, se a sense of the clip rate you were growing at from 96 to 99, presumably pretty yeah. fast if you went public. So, so yeah, pretty fast. Uh, we grew 40% every quarter, and that was over the last quarter. Um, so our headcount doubled every 120 days and did that for years. Wow. Why go public? What was the thinking there? Um, you know, it was, and I feel like I kind of know better now um, because we could, right? Our business was performing in such a way that allowed us to access the public markets um, for capital. And so we did, and we, and we could, you know, not lots of opportunities for visibility, new customers, um, raised a significant amount of capital that we didn't need a lot, um, gave us the opportunity to sustain that kind of growth for the years to come. What was but, the value? Mostly because we could. What was the value of the company as a public entity? Like what, what did the market capitalization yeah. reach? You know, so when we took it public, um, I think our offering was around the high 200s, right? So call it, you know, 275 million, something like that. That was, the, um, that was basically it, the, the market capitalization, meaning the value of all the outstanding shares. That's right. When we went okay. public. Um, and, you know, over the course of the next year or so, it grew to about 3 billion. Wow. You're my first billionaire, Sonny. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this is great. Wait until okay, you hear the so rest the of the story. You may not say that anymore. <laughs> okay. All right. We're coming to that. Okay. So you literally build a company from scratch to a market capitalization of $3 billion. How's that feel? Yeah. 
Um, you know, we, there was no time to notice how it felt at the time. It was just all day, every day. Um, you hear the, you know, stories and metaphors of sleeping under your desk. You really actually did sleep under the desk. I got really good at running on four hours of sleep. And, and again, just as a reminder, like, think about inside your own business, what the chaos would look like if every four months you had twice as many employees. Can't imagine. And then you did it again. It's not that you did it one time. It's that you're now on the seventh generation of doubling headcount again. And you need new rules. Like you're not allowed to have any full teams of people that have only worked at the company less than 90 days. Guess how you find out that problem or get that rule, right? Because you make the mistake and you realize, why is this? This whole team has no idea what's going on. Why? And you look and you go, oh, they're all new. Um, so it was, it was pretty crazy. Where does it go from there? So you're at 3 billion. Ultimately, you sold the company, but so take fill in the blanks for us. It was a little messy between three billion and when we sold the company. Um, so, so here's how this played out. Um, we were rocking along, growing at forty percent a quarter. Um, which, to be clear, if you're growing at forty percent a quarter and you have to build your infrastructure to manage that kind of growth, that means you're always kind of fifty percent larger than you should be for your current revenue which is fine when you continue to grow, but along comes the dot-com crash and about half of our customer base um, either went out of business or you know, had to significantly curtail their activities because they couldn't raise financing. Um, and so the business went to flat very quickly. It was unfortunate. We were one quarter away from profitability. Um, mm. And so, so, so that had a pretty big effect on our business. You know, we needed to do a couple rounds of layoffs, got lots of learning it was about that. Um, probably one of the more painful things I've had to, to go through to actually kind of shrink that business. Um, and, you know, over time, the market obviously responded to that. Our market cap got cut in about a third and, and then ultimately became smaller, largely because I think the world sort of realized, okay, this growth that you had before may not be the growth you have in the future. Um, and so it just kind of continued to drag along where the, the world at, at large, the economy wasn't doing great because of this, but certainly in the ecosystem of technology, uh, we were in the trough of disillusionment about the internet, and so everything had slowed down, and we were not yet profitable. And ultimately, our decision came down to this. We either needed to merge with a larger company um, or take on a significant amount of capital. And, and the decision I made was it was unclear how long this was going to last. So it was unclear how much capital we would need to raise to kind of wait it out and hope it got better. And I think in general, my advice, like waiting it out and hoping it's going to get better, that's usually not a good plan. That's literally you're just betting on hope and things that have nothing to do with you or your ability to influence the world. And, and so we said, look, we've, we, let's look at the other option. And we had an extraordinary fit in an acquirer. We had one of our investors was uh, Compact Computer. Um, we had been very close to the company for many years, um, sort of best of friends, worked together deeply, um, shared a board member. And so Compaq made a very substantial offer for the business, and it was a perfect fit. Um, and to make a long story short, Compaq merged, merged with HP, and we didn't have a deal anymore. Hmm. So I was feeling offer? a little chilly out in the world. About a billion. Yeah. C can you share what their offer was? What, what, what yeah, so, very substantial is? Oh, it was about a billion dollars. Wow. Okay. So you go from, from three down to a billion, but things aren't, in terms of market cap as a public company, but things aren't looking great. The growth has, has definitely slowed. You've had to go through the layoffs. And so the compact offer was, it, 
what presumably was this amazing sort of, I can't think of the word, it's not an olive branch, but it's an amazing sort of life ring. Maybe that's too dramatic. How about we call it too good to be true given the benefit of hindsight? Right. Um, sure. it, it was it was perfect on every dimension look the, the financial outcome was extraordinary so maybe sonny you could describe what you saw as the strategic fit with compaq yeah so so here was the strategic fit through the lens of customer um, compaq had a obviously a br- very broad suite of it services um, based on largely on their acquisition um, of digital equipment um, they had all of the, the physical platforms, the hardware, and so forth. And they had built uh, what at the time was the, the primary relationship with Microsoft, which we were focused on that platform. Um, and so, so our key fundamental issue was that when we found the right profile of customer, we always won. But mm-hmm. for us to sift and sort through the market and find the right pro- profile of customer was extraordinarily expensive and time-consuming. And so Compaq had embedded in its customer base um, all of our future customers. And so we would get a thousand salespeople and customers that were queued up and lined up and already great fits for what we did, which in contrast, our world was, you know, we had 25 salespeople that were struggling to find the, the right fit. And so on the customer dimension, just in, ex- in terms of a customer acquisition and extraordinary fit. Um, and if you were already a believer in their platform and their way of doing things, then buying service from my company would have been an easy yes. Um, and so that was the, the essence of the fit. Um, everything was great. And then later on as, well, you know what, let me back up. I'm going to tell you the story so you can, you can live it with me. Sure. So, so we're in a time where fax machines are still a thing. Um, <laughs> and it's Friday and we need one more piece of paper and the deal's done. Okay, one paper, one piece, and it's going out on the wire and it's done, and it's a Friday. Um, and remember, we, we were close. Like, we were, were close to the leadership team of, of this business. Um, and so Friday morning came and, you know, no, no facts, and I'm kind of getting a little itchy, and I'm trying to be a grown-up and not, like, call and freak out. Um, it's not working very well, but I'm at least able to keep my hands off the phone. But I couldn't keep my hands off the fax machine. I, I literally would go out and I would check the facts and check the phone line and like print the test facts page. And then I fax something to myself to make sure the fax machine was working. And all through this time, like I was supposed to work that day and there's no way I could get any work done. Um, and I just keep checking it and fiddling with it and testing it. I'm growing more and more agitated. And it's Friday and like close the business comes and I just kind of take a big, deep breath. And I go, well, it was a long weekend. Um, just go home and just just relax and not like not worry about this. Um, and so on on Monday, which was a holiday, um, news comes across CNN that says Compaq and HP agree to merge. And here's what that means: deal's over, it's off. The perfect fit at the perfect price with people you know that are going to be a great like everything's great. You couldn't have asked for a better outcome. Um, it's all deal's off. That's it. It's over. So that was kind of a rough day. Uh, what What did you? How did you? How did you um, make the connection between the CNN story you were watching and the deal being off? Did someone pick up the phone and say, "Oh, by the way, Sonny, have you seen the news? The deal's off." Or did you lace two and two together on your own? Yeah. So 
So it was obvious. Look, we, we tried. We called them and said, hey, we can still do this. We read your merger agreement. Let's go. Um, but that was a bit of a Hail Mary because we knew better. And, and here's why, right? If you think about you have these two very large organizations in the midst of a very complex merger that they both need. They've decided as, as companies that it's important to them. Um, anything that could derail that merger wasn't worth it. The long and short of it was completing our transaction had some risk for Compaq in potentially creating an issue for HP. And for no other reason, their entire leadership team was consumed with how do we pull this merger off and make this work? And so anytime they spent working on our stuff just wasn't as important as their $25 billion merger. So how does, um, how did you feel about the, the, the executives at Compaq on the other side of that, of your deal? In your own words, you were friendly, you'd known them, they were partners. Obviously they were hiding something for you along the way. They must've known that this HP deal was in the pipeline. Yeah, so, so a couple of things. One, um, because of the implications of this transaction, a very, very small number of people knew about the transaction. The hmm. vast majority of the organization, even at the senior leadership team, was effectively surprised by it because it was one that if it leaked, it would break the transaction. Um, and so both teams decided to keep it into a very, very small group of people. Um, so on one hand, you can go, wow, they knew. On the other hand, um, if I was in their shoes, I wouldn't tell me either because I'd be putting a $25 billion merger at risk. It's sort of very little upside um, and mostly downside. So it was hard to harbor any ill will because they made the right choice for their company. That's easy to say 18 years later <laughs> at the time. How did you feel? <laughs> um, I was bummed. Right. It was because it was so lined up and everything was great. Um, and, you know, as a reminder, it meant I didn't have to be a public company CEO anymore, which is a hard, it's a hard job. Um, and it would let me kind of go back and focus a little more on the things I loved most. Um, and so it was, you know, look, you're you're literally minutes away from a perfect outcome um, and then it's gone. Um, and so but, you know, it's look. You know, it's just CEO, you've got about 30 seconds to grieve over it and then get on with it. Your company is still relying on you. Your customers are relying on you. Your employees are relying on you. So you pick yourself up out of the dirt and get to it. Well, um, how many employees did you have at the time, Sonny? Like, give me a sense of the size, revenue-wise, where were yeah, these I would number of employees? Yeah, um, I would guess we were probably in the 50, 60 million revenue range and three, 400 employees. Okay. Got it. So a significant business and Compaq was going to pay a significant, like 20 times revenue. It's not a bad number. Yes. yes. Where does it go from there? Um, so, so we kind of regrouped. Um, we had on again, off again, worked with investment bankers to, to have conversations around everything from, um, you know, follow on public offerings to potential acquirers that were talking to us. So there, there were lots of people that talked to us along the way. I'll sort of skip those stories. Um, so we went back to our investment bankers and said, okay, well, now what? Um, and so we had, had had some other conversations with some other people. And, and I was speaking at a conference, uh, a Wall Street conference, and an investment banker came up to me. This was probably two weeks after that um, and said, hey, I've got an idea for you. 
I've got an acquirer who's not somebody you would normally think of, but here's my rationale. And he took me through his rationale about where it fit. And it actually made a lot of sense. I was like, wow, I never would have thought of them, but that's a great idea. And so we did the early, you know, M&A dance and exchanged some stuff and started talking and it got real serious. And, and ultimately, um, you know, got to a point where we had a, a an offer from them. Um, and I think this, one of my critical mistakes in this transaction um, was not doing enough reverse due diligence. Hmm. So we have this set of beliefs about who a company is and what they stand for and what their plans are and what the culture is like, um, good or bad. And we, they're just beliefs. They're, they're opinions. And my advice to my old self um, is, yeah, go find out for sure. You may think they have a horrible culture. Go find out. Maybe it's great. I've seen it, I've seen it turn out that way. You may think the culture is awesome and the leadership's awesome and the plan is awesome and everything's awesome and you're super excited because they're giving you this offer and it may not actually have any truth to it hmm. at all. Um, and so I think with the benefit of hindsight, yeah, I did probably check the box on this. We spent like a day doing reverse due diligence. Who are these people and what are they doing and what are their plans and all those questions. Um, you know, and look, to be a bit compassionate with our situation, we were in a bit of a bind too. We needed to get after it and we needed to get something done. Is that, um, Sonny, help me understand that. Was there at this point after the compact merger had died uh, or acquisition had died, were you on a a kind of a burning platform? Were you burning cash and needed to sell or yes. were you basically sort of? Yeah. So, so we were, as a reminder, we were one quarter away from profitability. Um, but, but if you remember the scale of our growth, that meant we were 40% too large. Um, and so while we had been able to cut lots of expenses, um, we were not just given the nature of how the business scaled, not really able to get it down to, to break even. And so, so yeah, we were running out of time, um, and and with the compact merger imminent, it didn't make sense to readjust the business. You know, if they go back to compact and say, hey, by the way, we cut cost another twenty percent, they're like, what are you doing? That's what I'm trying to buy, and um, and so yeah, we we were running out of time at this point. Um, we probably had about six months of cash left, which means we were either going to have to raise cash on on some bad terms. Um, or complete another sale. And, and sort of my view was um, raising more cash wasn't going to actually help any of the issues anyway. Um, and so we decided to go through with the sale. And so, so the way it played out, um, we basically got about 20. They were also a public company. We, our investors, our shareholders got 20% of their company, um, which seemed interesting. I had a billion of revenue, um, you know, pretty big business, thousands of employees, so forth. Um, and that thing didn't go well. Um, Let me just but, pause there. I, I want more yeah. on that. But so this is a an IT rollup that that was had a billion dollars in in revenue. That in exchange for your company, you got twenty percent of their company. That's right. Okay. Um, so it seemed like a reasonable deal given, you know, relative scales of the business. Um, it may be even disproportionate based on revenue. Um, 
but our our business was more recurring revenue than theirs, so so fine. So we get on the other side of the transaction. Um, and long story short, we figure out that their strategy and execution are not connected at all. Um, that their roll up of forty companies felt like a roll up of forty companies thrown in a pile. Um, and that the the one thing we needed most, um, access to customers, the sales force of the combined business wasn't ready to give to us. And it was everything from compensation systems to um, just complexity of sale. Like it's easier to sell consulting than it is to sell, you know, mission critical managed hosting. And so it we weren't finding actually a ton of value in the combination and and we saw lots and lots of problems inside the business. Um, and so in, it, it, I think many of the problems stemmed from if you put 40 companies together really fast, um, it, it just doesn't work very well. It's going to take time to work all those kinds of things out. And there's going to be lots of, of bumps. Um, and so for you, bumps, per, sorry, Sonny, but just to be clear for you personally, when you went through this, uh, this merger, I guess, where you're getting 20% of their company, what is your role, uh, in the new in the new entity, are, are yeah. you the division so, leader, or what, what's your personal job at that time? Yeah, so, so that's right. My role was the division leader for um, this set of services. They had also acquired a similar company to ours, um, and so my task was to merge that company basically into ours, and and we were going to be a part of that. So I had probably four or five business unit leaders, and and I was one of them. Um, that's also where I got to learn. Like I'm I'm actually not not good at that business unit leader stuff. I'm kind of unemployable because um, <laughs> I'm not good at rules that other people make and, mm. um, and so forth. So that, that was, I'm so surprised. Of you. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's an entrepreneurial thing. I think we're, um, when we tell ourselves we're going to fit just fine inside the big corporate behemoth, um, it's rare. It happens yeah. sometimes, but it's really, really rare. So where and does so, it go from there? Yeah, so where it goes from there. Um, so their business was also not profitable, um, but at least at the time had lots of cash. And, and the story about why they weren't profitable made sense. And, um, but 12 months later, they filed for Chapter 11. And you would think that's bad news. You're like, oh, no, the world is you know, falling apart. Um, it's the end. And we didn't look at it that way. We looked at it like, hey, we have a shot at a do-over that most people never get. Um, we can buy it back. Um, so we, we bought point? it back. Who's the uh, Yeah, our team, our founding team, and some investors that we had hooked up with. Um, and so we, we bought it back about a year after the sale. Um, so, I was, you know, was... so I got the old business cards out and kept doing what we were doing. Um, I think that that was made public, wasn't it? The when you yes, yes. bought it back, what what did you buy it back for? Yeah, I think it would have been uh, it was probably thirty million dollars. Amazing. So so you go from a three billion market cap to a billion with Compaq to bankruptcy essentially, but then back to and then you're buying out of the ashes of that business. If I'm if I'm paraphrasing. You're, you're picking up the assets that you knew best that had in, inherent value and paid roughly $30 million for that. And here's the funny thing. 
Um, if you remember earlier, I said, hey, we just we needed one more quarter of growth to be profitable. And so when we bought it back, the thing we bought back was profitable. And what was that thing called? What was the name of the company? Uh, oh, so the name of the company was Data Return. Data Return. Okay. So you buy yeah. Data Return back essentially for $30 million, which you raise your, your founding partners, your, your former colleagues at Microsoft, and then some investors. Yes. Got it. Yeah, so we, we bought it back. Um, we had lots of things to unwind and clean up and rebuild and fix. Um, but it was a lot of fun because we were out on our own again, um, doing what we loved, which was building a company. And your role as CEO at this point in the next iteration? Yes, yes. Okay. Yes. So I was founder and CEO, then business unit head for a year, and then back to CEO. Um, and so we ran as a private company for the next four years, probably a good bit slower growth. I would guess we were probably average 15% a year growth. Um, as you might imagine, we were a good bit conservative on how we ran things, um, maybe too much so, in fact, um, hmm. given those, those recent experiences. I mean, look, you, you know, one of the things we didn't mention is right in the middle of all of this was 9-11. Right. And so we had dot-com crash and 9-11. Those, you get a couple of experiences like that right in a row. Um, they can cause you to be a bit too conservative, perhaps. Mm -hmm. um, but it, look, it, it turned out well. We ran it as a private company for four years. We built the first enterprise cloud computing. Um, we launched in 2005. That was sort of and enterprise cloud computing won't mean anything. To, it doesn't mean anything to me. So that's when you're yeah. hosting big companies' websites. Is that right? Yeah. So so if you think about you hear about all this stuff, the cloud computing, Amazon EC2, and and so on and so forth, where effectively your applications don't run on specific servers. They run on a big pile of servers, and they can move around from server to server. Uh, okay. Um, when so one, one server gets okay, got it. Yeah. Um, and so that's, they call it the cloud. We called it something else at the time. Um, so because that was our customer base where these mission critical applications and one of them had come to us and said, look, if you can figure this out, we'd love to give you lots of stuff. And we said, well, it doesn't matter if no one's done it, let's figure it out. And so we did. And, um, so that was probably in 2005 and um, ultimately sold the business the second time in May of 2007. Um, and, and we like to think we learned a lot along the way. Um, the second time we sold the business, um, we had a much clearer sense of what we wanted, um, much clearer sense of how to do reverse due diligence, and so lots of lessons learned um, on the second go-round. And what did you sell it for the second time? I think the second time we sold it for $85 million at close. It ended up being a good bit more than that because we, we took some stock. The acquirer was a public company, um, so we took some stock in that, in that deal as well. Got it. Okay. So, so it ended up being a, a, a fantastic transaction. You buy for 30, four years later, you sell for 85. Worked out all right. That sounds like a pretty good deal to me. <laughs> um, the second transaction, when you sell for 85, what was that like? Was that a kind of a dog and pony show where the M&A bankers kind of trot you out to a few acquirers? What triggered that, that desire to sell in 2007? And then sort of how did you go about doing it? Yeah, I, you know, I think on this one, we saw a couple of things here. Um, one, we were at about the 10-year mark for the business. Um, Two, 
we were starting to hear these radio ads about home loans with no money down and no interest payments and no checking of income and and th these were things that would obviously were sort of foreshadowing the, the financial crisis um and i had that moment where i heard the radio ad and i usually if i was in the car i was on the phone like an entrepreneur like every available moment i'm i got something going on i'm not listening to the radio um, and I heard this ad come, and I drove back to the office, and I got the team in, in the room, and I said, and, and we had been together for a really long time. I said, look, guys, here's the deal. Here's this ad. I don't really know what's going to happen, but this, this sounds a lot like kind of 1999, 2000 era stuff. This doesn't feel very sane. So here's what I need from you. We need to either sign up for another full five years, because who knows what the trough is going to look like. We just got to gut it out for five years. Like things are good now, but we don't know how they're going to be in a while. And so, so you just need to be ready for a full five years. Um, or this is a great time and place in our history to have an exit. You know, one of the things we had, had done during the second um, half of the business, that second four years, is, is we got the business to a place where I was not involved in any day-to-day -day processes. There were no things that happened on a Tuesday that required me. There was no line at my door. Um, and so all of my time was on like, strategy and forward thinking and new product. And, and so that gave us the opportunity to look at the business and say, it's actually ready to fit somewhere else. It's ready to have another owner. Um, it's probably worth more. My, my opinion is that moment where the founder disconnects um, and isn't needed on any given Tuesday is a really important moment in a company's history. Why is that? What, what is it about the, when the founder's sort of able to step away? That what, what, what is, Why do you think that's such a seminal moment? Um, I think it's because it says a lot on, on how have you, have you built something of enduring value? Right? If it requires your hand on it every day, do you really have anything yet other than an extension of yourself? Um, but once you've extended past yourself, like it can stand on its own two feet. Um, so a, a bit analogous to your kids actually being grown up and being able to provide for themselves. Um, and, and frankly, for me personally, I enjoyed it more anyway. Um, and so I, I remember that moment where I realized I have an extraordinary team that knows what they're doing, and the very best thing I can do for them is to stay out of their way. Right? And so my job turned entirely to where are we going in the future, um, and how does this team work together instead of me being in the CFO's business, trying to do their job for them or, or what have you. And so something important, and my belief is it's important whether you're going to sell or not. Um, but if you're in a sale process, acquirers know this stuff. They know how to read it. They know how to see it. And so if you're in hero mode when you're doing these dog and ponies and you're acquired, like every conversation you have is about how important you are and, you know, this big hero thing you did and, oh, I've got the relationship with our 10 largest customers. Hey, let me tell you, on the other side as an acquirer, that stuff is terrifying. You never want to hear it. Because what that says is your, your whole bet relies on one person instead of relying on a system and relying on a team. Um, and so that you got to get all the hero out of your business for it to be able to stand alone. 
Um, and to be clear, like no matter what you think is going to happen, every business someday will be run by somebody else. It's one of the inevitabilities. Even if you're like, well, I'm going to give it to my kids. Okay. Somebody else is going to run it and somebody else is going to own it. And it's not going to be you. Um, and so thinking about how to make your business run better and thinking about how to make your business run without you ultimately makes it more valuable um, and not just in a monetary sense and in all of the other things that are value. It brings me to uh, your book, uh, the book that's coming out in, um, well, actually by the time this episode will be live, it's actually going to be available. <coughs> Excuse me. So the book is called Selling Without Selling Out. Um, give me the subtitle again. It's a great subtitle. Yeah, the subtitle is How to Sell Your Business Without Selling Your Soul. So what props did you want to write this book? Uh, you, you know, that, that's a good question. Now, two and a half years later, um, I wonder why. And I actually have a real <laughs> answer. That's not a good right? sign. For those of you that have, have, have written a book, it's, it's, it has to be a labor of love um, because it's otherwise too hard. Um, here's, here's the deal. I wrote the book that I wish I had read before I sold my company the first time. Like these are lessons to my 20 years ago self about, um, things I've experienced since then, things that other CEOs have experienced since then about how to get an outcome that meets all of your needs. And so one of the realizations was that, um, like we talk about value all the time, um, and how to get more of it, but we don't really talk about what value is. What do you actually care about? Um, my own personal experience, and, and I think this is true for most CEOs, is that money is a component of value, but there are lots of other things that matter to us. And I'm going to give you the quick question to ask yourself to figure out, do I only care about money or not? Um, so you have an acquirer um, who you find out is going to fire everybody the day of close and shut the company down. So it's over. If you've got a plant, they're shutting it down. All the employees are fired. They're getting rid of all the customers. They just want to take you out, get you out of the market. How much more do they have to pay? My own experience is lots of CEOs recoil at even the idea of that. And there's not a number that somebody could pay that would make it okay to fire everybody. There are some of us that it just it's entirely an economic transaction. Like that's fine. And by the way, that's not who the book's for. Like if you only, if money's the only thing that matters, like don't read it. It's not useful to you. Um, but if you answer the question about, well, I wouldn't want an acquirer to do that and they couldn't pay me to do that. Um, then it starts to beg the question of, okay, well, what do you really care about? And let's go on the journey and explore um, what is it that we care about? And what, what is it that we want to see happen the day after close? Um, the premise is closing day is not the important day. It's the day after. What other lessons, in addition to the figuring out your relationship to value and what value means beyond just economic, what other kind of tactical or tangible lessons does the book have? I know there's probably hundreds, but is there one or two, given the, the nature of what we do on this show, that you might, you might draw out for our listeners? Yeah, I would say there's, there are a couple of things that come to mind. We'll call it three. So, so first, um, write it down. And when I say write, write things down, I, I mean like figure out what you value and write them down on actual paper and look at them over and over again over time. It'll, it'll take a little while 
kind of unpack what you really care about and what you really prioritize. Um, so for a lot of entrepreneurs, the a lot of entrepreneurs are going to listen to that and go, like, Sonny, I, I care about money, right? Like, I'm, I want to cash out. How would you respond I if someone said that? I don't believe you. <laughs> I think go further. I just don't. I don't. Like, would you go ask me? sell your company and only care about money and then call me the day after close when you're crying or have 102 fever and you realize they're dismantling your life's work and you don't feel good about it and ask me how that worked out. It's very rare. So it's, look, it's really easy to get tied up in the, the you know, golden bell or the brass ring or all the stuff. Um, and here's what we found. We talked to a bunch of CEOs and the story over and over again was the same thing. The thing that drove their happiness in the sale wasn't the price they got. It was a whole bunch of other stuff. Like what? The price was important. It's a threshold. It's what they do with the company afterwards. What happened to the customers? What happened to my employees? It turns out that there are, there's an easy way to figure out at least who or what you could care about, and then you have to decide what you want for them. So, so we use the term stakeholders, and that's who cares about your business. And so for each of us, we can make a list, and um, I've got some tools on my website, sonnyvanderbeck.com, where you can kind of help unpack this to say, okay, who do I care about? The customers and suppliers and the community I'm in and so on and so forth, and you write that down. And then you write down what you want for each of those and what you want for yourself and what you want for your family. And the process of doing that, you'll get clear on what matters to you as it relates to your employees. So I'll give you an example. Um, I had a friend who sold his business to a, a large Japanese firm. Um, one of the things he negotiated in the transaction was that, that seniority and tenure in his firm translated to the Japanese firm. And here's why. The Japanese firm, this particular one, um, time at the company mattered a lot. It was big ceremony, big importance, big sort of influence in the company. If you had been at the company 20 years, you had more say than if you had been at the company 10 years. And so he negotiated that into his agreement with his acquirer to say, if somebody's been here 18 years, that counts. And so he got to see his employees get 20-year pins two years after the transaction. So that's a very specific example, but like just figure out what you care about. Um, because as as you go into the transaction, then you'll know how to know if you're getting what you want. Um, so, so the first thing is just simply figure out who you care about, what you want for, for them, what you care about, and maybe if there's some non-negotiables, like maybe fire everybody is a non-negotiable. Just get clear on that. Um, so, and, and write it down. I know I've said write it down like six times. I should probably say it 12. Something magic happens when you write it down on paper because when you go back and look at those words, you'll find, oh, I don't really mean that. Or you'll, you'll find nuances and tune-ups. And here's what I've seen a few entrepreneurs do. They'll take that paper. And by the way, that also includes the money stuff and put it in a sealed envelope. It can be really useful later on when the deal gets sideways. Lots of deals get a little sideways during the process. And so, so this would be my, my second tip. Um, some stuff's going to happen in the process of selling your company that's going to make you mad or sad. And you're going to have an emotional response to it. Um, but get over it. Get over it and get over yourself. Because the thing you have to ask is not, is this term that's in front of me now, is this particular term fair or not? 
it actually doesn't matter. What matters is taken as a whole, given what I'm trying to solve, is this a good deal or not? And if it's not a good deal, then don't do it. But if there's some term that just sets you sideways, um, you may just have to get over it. Because if that thing is not one of your real priorities, then it's just not a priority. Don't get wrapped up about it. Um, and and this, this transitions into my third tip. Um, <clears throat> there's a, a, a funny line between listening to your advisors because you paid them money to advise you and they're supposed to give you good advice and not listening to them because their objectives are not exactly the same as yours. So your, your advisors generally, their success means they got the highest price and they got the transaction closed. That's what they care about. But if you remember from the first one, you actually care about a bunch of other stuff. Like, look, all the bankers and lawyers, transactions done, they go home, they move on to their next thing, and you're left with the consequences of your decisions and your actions, and only you. And so half of my advice here is you have to listen to your advisors. If they're telling you, as an example, hey, this term in a purchase contract is just standard. This is how things are. Quit being wrapped up about this then you probably actually need to quit being wrapped up about it. I, I know a CEO um, who walked away from a sale that was perfect on all fronts, but for this one term called fundamental reps. And the idea around fundamental reps is you have to warrant to this, the buyer that you actually own the company you're selling and you haven't committed any overt fraud. That seems like a pretty... Pretty, pretty easy thing to agree to. Like you, yes, it's my company. Yeah, you, you, you really own this. Um, and it looks big and scary because the, the penalties are up to the entire transaction price. And so this entrepreneur got scared, which is reasonable to be scared. Go, Golly, this is the, you could make me give the whole purchase price back. Well, like, yeah, if it wasn't your company in the first place and you made fraudulent documents, yes. Um, and his attorney was like, look, man, there are no transactions that happen without this. This is like saying we're negotiating the wrong thing. Um, and he just couldn't hear it. It was, there was too much fear. He couldn't listen to his attorney that was like, look, this is, of all the things to negotiate or be freaked out about, this is not the thing. Um, and so he walked away from the deal. And you know, I feel for him because if he's ever going to sell the business, um, instead of it being handed abruptly to his children when he passes, um, he's going to have to make a fundamental rep but he just got stuck on it. Well, look, we're entrepreneurs. We get obstinate about things. I think it's in our job description to be obstinate and unreasonable about things because that's how we're able to create some of the success we create. This is one of those places where there, sometimes you've actually got to listen to what your advisors are telling you about a situation um, or a term or something like that. But here's the tough part. The other half of the time you have to ignore them because they don't know what they're talking about. And so it's, it takes some nuance to think about, okay, where might they really know? So if your attorney is telling you a, a contract term is standard and has been negotiated by a thousand companies, like you'd probably get over it. On the other hand, um, if you remember our second sale that, that in my mind turned out to be extraordinary, all of our stakeholders got what they wanted and needed. Employees got promoted. Customers were happy. It was great. Um, our investment banker said they didn't want to put that company on the list because they weren't a real buyer. 
and I had to. What, why just, did they not think they were a real buyer? Uh, because they hadn't done any other acquisitions. What was the what? Who was the acquirer? Uh, a company called Terramark. Okay. And they hadn't done. They hadn't had. Didn't have a history of making transactions, and so they said, like, right. "These guys aren't going to. They're not going to be interested." The, the bankers said, "Look, they're tire kickers. They're never actually going to close." Why were you uh, just a so? Time. Why were you so convinced that they would be a good fit? Uh, I had had a conversation with the CEO directly, who was also a founder. Um, and you know, sometimes founders like we can talk to each other in founder speak sometimes and pick up lots of nuance in a conversation. What did he um, say that gave you? And, the, what what founder speak did he use that gave you a sense he was? Uh, real? You know, unfortunately, it's been so long. Um, all I can remember is the essence of the thing, and the essence of the thing was this: the things that our company was extraordinary at, they weren't, and the things they were extraordinary at, we weren't. There was almost no overlap in the actual service capabilities of the business, but our customers were all trying to buy the same thematic outcome. They were all trying to buy the best. Now, they did co-location, so total hands-off, like here's a space in Iraq, I hope it turns out for you. And we did this ultra-high-end managed service stuff. And so their thesis was this. Customers that buy lots of co-location, that want to buy high-end, that have mission-critical applications, may have some parts where they want somebody to run it for them. Customers that buy this high-end stuff may have some parts where they want to run it themselves. Let's put it together and go out into the market. So here's what happened in the market. Our salespeople and their salespeople no longer had to try to compete against a substitute, another way to get it done. If a customer said, hey, I don't want you guys to mess with it. I just want the best co-location. The sales guys of the combined company could say, that's great. We have that. If they said, hey, I, I need you to run this for me, then the sales guys of the combined company could just say, yeah, we do that and we're extraordinary at it. And so all this time and energy, both of our sales forces spent selling, not necessarily directly against each other, but against each other's category, were gone. We could just say, yes, we can, and it's going to be great. And so what happened is we put the companies together, like growth rate doubled. Because it was right. The thesis made a lot of sense. So look, I talked to this guy. He was genuine. His story about where the capital was going to come from um, was very believable. The strategy made a lot of sense. And we had learned our lesson before, like, okay, that all sounds cool, but you got to do a lot of reverse due diligence and spend a bunch of time vetting it out. So, so we had a sane strategy. Um, he had really given some thought to the why and the how he was going to do the transaction. My read was that he was serious and the bankers were being lazy. And so I just said, I don't, I don't care. I, I know you don't think they're a viable acquirer. Um, put them on the list anyway. And there was some uncomfortable silence on the phone. Um, and they said, okay, and we moved on. But that was one of those moments. I remember where I was standing when we had that conversation. Because as it turned out, it was a very important conversation. Uh, but sometimes you have to take a stand for what you care about. And so, so you'll get in, here's one of the things that's going to happen is you're going to get in the swirl of the transaction where it's, transactions have a pace and a timing and everybody in the whole deal knows what's going on except for you. Everybody else has done this a bunch of times. You don't really. And, and so it's going to run away with you if you haven't written down what you care about. And something you told the banker you cared about early on in the process verbally 
they'll just brush aside. They send you a big old spreadsheet with a bunch of price and terms in it and say, we think, you know, row number three is the best buyer because they've got the highest price and the highest probability to close. And nowhere in that spreadsheet is, yeah, but what happens to my employees and what about my customers? And we do this thing in the community that matters to me and what's their strategy and all these other questions that are non-financial things, they get cut out of the spreadsheet. And so that opportunity for you to take a stand in the middle of this whirlwind that, that if you don't do anything, it will carry you to the end and you will get the highest probability of close and the highest price, but you may not be happy. And so being able to, to understand what you want and need well enough to take a stand um, is important. And so back to this Terramark acquisition, like I actually knew what we were looking for because I got it wrong the first time. Um, and when I looked at Terramark, it actually looked like it was going to be a great fit. When you talk about reverse due diligence, and you brought it up a couple of times, what I've heard from you on that score is understand where the capital is going to come from, the buyer's capital. Is it real? Um, understand some of the operational issues like the difficulty of stitching 40 companies together is going to be problematic. Understand the salespeople and the, how their commissions are structured and try to understand if you can plug your business into their sales funnel and their sales commission structure. What else would you look at in a reverse due diligence to, to, uh, to evaluate a potential acquirer? Yeah, a couple things. Um, one, what's the culture really like at the acquirer? You, and you can't do that without spending time there, physically spending time at the company and just watching. Just watching how are people excited? Are they happy? Are they having a good time? Are people shuffling around, staring at the floor? Um, understanding what the acquirer's culture is like is going to tell you a lot. Um, the second one is just this big open-ended question, and, and you'll have to keep at this question. Wh what are you going to do with it? So just just the simple question of what are you going to do with it? Um, the first answer you're going to get is just going to be this kind of, you know, glad-handed answer about, oh, we're going to X, Y, Z. Like, don't take that BS. Like, really, like, oh, no, let's get on the whiteboard. Like, show me what happens. How does this work? Who's going to report to who? Show me the org chart. Where do my salespeople go? Where do my operations people go? What are we going to do with the plant? How does it fit? And actually spending time to go through because in most cases, the acquirer knows what they're going to do with it. They may not have just told you yet. And they're not used to being asked questions like that. Like, like specifically, what are you going to do? Okay, transaction closes, now what? Like, take me through the next 100 days. Take me through the strategic plan. What, are we going to roll this out to your other customers? Like, like, ask real serious questions about how's this going to work out? And that's the, the big reframe that I'm trying to get at in the book is that Everybody's energy and attention is focused on getting from, I've decided I want to sell or take on an investor to closing day. And what I'm suggesting is it's all the stuff that happens after closing day that actually will determine whether or not you're happy with the outcome or not. And so that sitting down with the acquirer and forcing the issue to what are you really going to do with it? Um, you're going to learn so much in that conversation. And just remember, like, don't take the first answer. Dig in, dig in more. I've learned a ton from you, Sonny, and, and I think our listeners have as well. I really appreciate you spending 
the time with us. I think uh, your candor, humility through the whole process of ups and downs, just just tremendous. And I'm glad it has worked out so well in the end. Uh, the book is called Selling Without Selling Out. It's available anywhere books are sold. Sonny, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.